let me go and read just a little bit of it at least. Starting in verse 19 of Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. And it goes on. We'll read the rest of it in a minute. But I just want to, for a second, to talk about this aspect before we get back to it. And, um, and the, main, the main reason for thinking that this is a parable, or that this is not a parable, is that Lazarus has a name. And that is an exception to all the parables. If this is a parable, this is the only parable in which somebody's given a name. Now, I think there are good reasons why Jesus gave him a name. I'll explain those to you in a few minutes. But that's the one primary argument for believing that this is not a parable, that Jesus is telling a story about two actual historical people, and this is what happened to them. Um, here's, here's why I don't think it is. This story is, the, the wording that Jesus uses here is almost identical to every other parable, not every other parable, but to a host of parables, about nine different parables that he told in the Gospel of Luke, and he introduced them in the same way. Let me give you a sample. Now, notice in Luke 16, verse 19, he says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple. Uh, some translations might put there was a certain. Do you have certain in there? Somebody have certain? Yeah, you've got certain. So it's possible to put the word certain in there. Some translations are going to have it and some are. And it's this little three-letter Greek word that can denote specificity. But it's also used in the others that I'm going to read in a second, or at least some of them. Uh, listen, listen to some of this just for a minute. Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus replied, A man, or a certain man, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Luke 12, 16, he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. In Luke 14, 16, but he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited men. It's the beginning of another parable. In Luke 15, 11, he said, There was a man who had ten sons, had two sons rather, in Luke 16, verse 1, which is the beginning of this chapter, he also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him. In Luke 18, 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Luke 19, 12 says, He said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Luke 20, and verse 9, he began to tell people, uh, this parable, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and so on. That is uh, four, eight. That's eight. That's eight in the Gospel of Luke. You can expand it beyond that. But eight of them within the Gospel of Luke, both before and after, and the wording, both in the English and in the underlying Greek, is almost identical in those parables. This was a way for Jesus to say, I'm about to tell you a story. Uh, I'm, 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 telling you a, I'm telling you a story. Sometimes Luke will add it with a preface and he began to teach them in parables, or he said to them a parable, and then you know, he introduces it that way. But the way, that, the way this story is told, the language is the language of story. It's a language of parable. That doesn't mean it, it's not true. I'm not saying that this doesn't have application or that it's not God's truth, only that this is a story. This is a, this is a parable, just like all the other parables. And the fact that he named Lazarus, which he didn't name people and others, uh, I'll bring that out as we go through this. But I wanted to just kind of get you thinking about that, or I don't know if you even care necessarily or have had thoughts about why we're studying this one when you've always heard, if you have heard, that it's not a parable. Um, but I just wanna, I want you to understand 
that the way this is framed um, leaves no doubt in the mind of those who, especially those who read the underlying text, leaves no doubt. In fact, I was looking at various commentaries today, not that they're right on everything, and sometimes you disagree with them, and sometimes I disagree with their conclusions, but, uh, but it is interesting when there is a consensus on, on something that it makes me want to think, well, maybe they know what they're talking about, and, and they usually, the commentaries will address this, they will say, some people think this is not a parable, there are some people out there, um, usually they'll bring it up, but then they'll go through these some of the stuff I shared with you and some of the language, and by the end of it, it is, they'll say things like, there is no doubt but that this is a parable. I mean, it just seems to be a consensus. So I don't know if he needed that justification or not, but, uh, but I wanted to talk about it just for a minute. Uh, let's do this. I want to, let's go and read it. First basic step in studying something, isn't it? Let's read it. I'm going to read all 13 verses before we start uh, into the meaning of it. Uh, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, let's think about it for a few minutes. Uh, this, is a, this is a powerful story, you know, this is a powerful, uh, very important to the message of Luke's gospel. Uh, in fact, I want to, just for a minute, to set the context here. If you go back to the beginning of Luke 16, a parable, I think we, we studied this, didn't we? The, the parable of the dishonest manager in the first part of Luke 16, the, 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 the manager who was taking care of his master's possessions, and he, you know, just, the story goes, he, he used the money wisely, or at least from his perspective, to protect his own interests. So that one's about how you use earthly things, how you use money. Then look at verse 14 of Luke 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And then if you... You went on in Luke's gospel, and in two chapters later in Luke 18, he tells the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Jesus told him, sell everything that he's got and give it to the poor. Um, you remember the, uh, the story? We studied this one, didn't we? Uh, in Luke 12, uh, Jesus was teaching, and somebody interrupted him and said, tell, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus responded to him by saying, 
you know, beware of covetousness. Then he told him the parable about the rich fool who built bigger barns, and this, that night he died, his soul was required of him. That story, that's in Luke 12. Now, interesting thing about a lot of this is this is peculiar to Luke's gospel. A rich man and Lazarus is not told in Matthew, Mark, or John. The rich fool is not told in Matthew, Mark, or John. Uh, some of these, these, the dishonest manager is not told. You've got these, these stories that Luke, because of his interest in, in this particular topic, that he chose to include them, whereas Matthew, Mark, and John don't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you probably remember, they agree on a lot of things, or at least they choose a lot of the same things. They're called the synoptics, which means to see the same thing. They're called the synoptics because they tell the same stories. And so it's interesting when you got one of them who deviates from the others. And that's how you figure out what they were particularly interested in. So when you look at Luke's gospel account and you look at how he deviates from Matthew and Mark when he doesn't on some other things, but he deviates on, on some things, that gives you a clue into what Luke is interested in teaching and what God is inspiring him to emphasize. And the thing that it seems interested Luke and that he felt like the church needed to hear was, well, there were a couple of things. One is the rich folks need to be very careful how they use their money, especially when it, when it comes to taking care of the disadvantaged or they're going to lose their souls. That's very important to Luke, uh, very important to the Lord, but Luke keys on a, in on that more than Matthew, Mark, or John. So that's an interesting thing. Another thing is, Luke is always particularly interested in the disenfranchised, those on the periphery of society. He's got a lot of stuff about women in his gospel account. He's only, you know, he tells us not the only one, but he, he emphasizes the story of the woman who came in and started weeping over Jesus' feet, let down her hair, that story that's back in Luke 7. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that the Samaritan was disadvantaged, you know, was, was an outcast in Judea, and yet he's the hero of the story. So you've got uh, Luke 18, was that two weeks ago when we studied Luke 18, 9 through 14, the, the, the Pharisee and the publican went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee bragged on himself, and the tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven, you know, that story. So the heroes for Luke are the poor, the female, their tax collectors, and Samaritans. And what those four groups have in common is their society had determined that they were less valuable than others because of race or gender or socioeconomic status or occupation. In Luke's gospel account, Luke says society may do that, but Jesus didn't. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to be people who don't divide over superficial things like race and gender and so on. So it's a big deal for Luke. So this one fits into the way Luke tells the story of Jesus is beautiful, of course. I mean, Matthew's got his own slant, you know. They, they all tell it from a perspective, and Luke's perspective is a beautiful one because it helps us to open our eyes to some of the things that we need to hear today. And so the, the illustration I started with tonight about the extremely rich and extremely poor that was in Jesus' world, and this is in our world. And so it's interesting to hear how Jesus said, or this is a very subtle thing. He doesn't like spell it out, but how, how Jesus used this story to make a very important point about how the haves ought to engage the have-nots, which I think is the main point of the story. I think there are some sub-points that are important. I think that's the main point of the story. It fits in with the context, fits in with Luke's overall thrust, and certainly you see it jump out when you read the story. 
All right, so let's just talk about a couple things here. Um, some, maybe a few specific things as you read it. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus is telling the story, obviously, to set these two in direct opposites. Um, this is the stories like this have been told for you know, generations, for centuries, for, for millennia, where you've got a reversal of fortunes. I mean, you've, this story is told. You know, we, we see this story in movies today. Uh, but that's what you've got here. He, he paints this story in ways that show Lazarus is as, an out, as much of an outcast as anybody, and Lazarus has got everything in the world. That's the way he tells it. So look, look at it. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And you, you may know that purple, <coughs> purple dye was hard to come by, gotten from a particular mollusk that they got out of the Mediterranean Sea, and it required a, a lot of mollusk to make just a little amount of dye. And so this was the color of the wealthy because you couldn't, you couldn't dye things with purple unless you were wealthy. You couldn't buy the dye. And uh, so it was used as considered the kingly color because kings wore purple, show, showing that they had money. So when it tells us that, that's, that meant a lot to them. So it describes him as rich, and then it tells us about how he dressed, and then it tells us about how he ate. Those three things, rich, he wore king's clothing, and he feasted sumptuously every day. Uh, he had plenty to eat. And, and so the way this begins is just, in, in their world, there weren't too many of these folks, but the ones that were like this were elite. A stark contrast from the other 99% who worked a day to eat that day work the next day to eat that day and so on. Not a, as I said earlier, not a big middle class in Judea at this time. You got the haves and then you got everybody else and they're just trying to scrape by, you know. But, but among the have-nots, you have some who were especially destitute and that's how Jesus tells us. So verse 20, at his gate, there's another hint. He's rich enough to have a gate. Most folks didn't have gates. He's got a gate. He was, at, at his gate was laid a poor man or uh, that that language there, the Greek language, I think is, is kind of in, probably a little bit more emphatic than the English here. At his gate was laid. It, it can carry with it the idea of thrown or cast down or something like that, uh, leading us to believe that Jesus means, means for us to understand that Lazarus couldn't walk. And so I don't want to read too much into it, but, but you kind of get the impression that Lazarus was treated roughly uh, by the folks laid might you know, he was laid, might, might for us mean, you know, he's carefully laid down. Well, the text is a little stronger than that. Uh, they didn't just, you know, tenderly lay him down. Um, it's a little stronger than that. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Probably wasn't leprous, uh, otherwise they wouldn't have touched him. And he wouldn't be allowed to stay that close to other people. So these sores, whatever they were, um, probably weren't associated with leprosy. May have been associated with uh, with his being gaunt and undernourished, malnourished. Could have been associated with that. We don't know. Doesn't tell us. But uh, obviously, we're meant to take away from this. This is a very pitiable situation. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. This 
some scholars think that this, what fell from the rich man's table was um, they would actually, rich people, they didn't have napkins and paper towels, um, they would actually use bread to wipe, to wipe themselves after they ate, to wipe their faces. Wipe the, they would use bread, they would cast the bread down. It's not certain that this what, that's what this means, though some I was reading do think it's pretty certain that that's what it's talking about here when it says he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Regardless, if it's talking about that or if it's talking about bread that was left over, food that was left over, we don't know for sure, but the image is one of destitution. He, I think it's a little bit more of a vivid image. I like to think that's what Jesus is saying here because it, I don't know, it's interesting to think. Lazarus was so hungry, he wanted to eat their napkins. You know, he wanted to eat what they wiped their, wiped the food off their faces with. It's just a, it's very vivid here. You know. He wanted to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Um, and you may, you may already know this, but you know when the Bible talks about dogs, it's not talking about man's best friend. You know that, right? Um, some of you, some of us a little bit more unwillingly have dogs in our houses, right? Um, some of you love your dogs, and nothing wrong with that. But that's completely foreign. Domestication of dogs was, I don't know when it happened, but it was a long time after this. Um, dogs, I, I was trying to think of a, a good synonym for this, and I, I think what comes to your mind when you think of maybe like jackal or a, a coyote, something like that? It's, it's a wild dog is what it is, and we have, you have wild dogs. It's a wild dog, but most of us don't see many wild dogs, but you do see coyotes. Uh, you, you know what you know what a jackal is. Is that is that kind of thing? These were despised. Um, Paul would even use it in Philippians three to beware of dogs when he he was talking about these these Judaizing teachers, these teachers that he was really upset with. Uh, he calls them dogs, and that wasn't a compliment. Uh, he's beware of these scoundrels, you know. So anyway, the dogs coming and licking his sores. This is not any sort of respite for him. This isn't making him feel better. It's, he, it's, he's so low, he's so low that these jackals are coming and licking his sores. It's just disgusting. That's the image. Dogs themselves are disgusting in that world. And thinking about these disgusting creatures licking the sores, you know. So if that disgusts you a little bit, then, then we're getting close. So rich man, very top. Lazarus, very low. I'll come back to the meaning of his name in a minute. <coughs> so the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The poor man, the rich man also died and was buried. You know, it's important to notice here, I think, that it doesn't say the poor man was buried. He wasn't buried. He wouldn't have been buried. Uh, he would have been taken down to the dump and thrown in there. I mean, that's, that's, that's how he would have gotten buried. Somebody would have noticed, hey, he's not moving today. Um, they would have taken him down to the, to the dump. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels. He wasn't carried to the, to the grave. Uh, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's you know, bosom, King James puts it, Abraham's side. This is just a, a biblical metaphorical way of describing uh, a place of great comfort. The name Lazarus means 
God helps or the one whom God helps. And it is the Greek equivalent of Eleazar. And so Eleazar in Hebrew, Lazarus in Greek. The reason that matters is, you know, pop quiz. You guys know who Eleazar is by chance? Yeah, it's Abraham's servant back in, back in the book of Genesis. Faithful servant to Abraham. And if you think this is not a parable, this, you'll disagree with me on this. But if you agree with me that it is a parable, then I'm suggesting to you that Jesus chose the name Lazarus because of that very thing. And that his audience would have read it that way. Steeped in Jewish scriptures, they would have known very well who Eleazar was. Knowing that Lazarus is the Greek equivalent, their language, it's, it's like um, Jesus and Joshua, you know. Um, that, that kind of similarity, it's words are the same. And so I think Jesus chose this because he's telling this story about Eleazar, Lazarus, is the lowest of the low, and yet at the end, he is elevated to be beside Abraham. And, and, and the, important, the important thing the important thing about, about that is that one thing, one thing Luke is doing in telling this story from the mouth of Jesus is he's responding to a common misperception in the ancient world and even in our day and time made popular by some of our health and wealth teachers and preachers that's you know, televangelists that, that suggest that if, you're, if things, are, things that are bad are happening to you, it's because you don't have enough faith. You know, if you just had more faith, if you'd put, you know, $10 in the, if you'd send $10 to my television program, God will return 100 in the next two weeks, you know, that sort of thing. This mentality that if bad things happen, this was Job's, Job's accusers, that if bad things happen to you, it's because you're unfaithful, it's because you've, you've, uh, you've earned God's disfavor, and if you're rich, it's because you're blessed by God. That was a perception in the world. And Luke, in telling this story, in positioning this story here, um, the story that Jesus told is responding to that kind of perception. And that perception is that you earn God's disfavor, disfavor you're poor, you're rich because God loves you. God, God has blessed you. And what Jesus says is, Lazarus, the lowest of the low at death, is elevated to a position of prominence. He is by Abraham. He's not, he's not even Eleazar the servant anymore. He's not the servant of Abraham. He's at Abraham's bosom. He's at Abraham's side. He is on par with Abraham. I mean, this is a Jewish way of saying, you don't get any better than that. You don't get it any worse than Lazarus had it in life, and you don't get it any better than Lazarus had it in the afterlife, in the next life. It's powerful the way Jesus frames his story. wasn't buried, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was what? Buried. Um, it's interesting you know, pay attention to the words that are, that are used here. Uh, you know, the Bible doesn't use throwaway words, and it, uh, they're, there, they're there for a reason. And Jesus tells us to help us to see, again, just this dichotomy, this great, great discrepancy, this reversal. He was buried probably with great fanfare. They probably hired mourners at his funeral as they did in the ancient world. You know, people crying, wailing. 
rich man didn't care. Not at that point. He didn't care anymore. So he was, he died and was buried. Poor man died and was carried to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man died and was carried to Hades. Verse 23. In torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. You know, Hades, it's hard to, I don't think we ought to take from this story some developed view of the, of the afterlife, of, of a waiting place, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, it's, it's, you need to be careful about forming, you know, especially dogmatic views about unclear things at best, especially about the afterlife from one story that Jesus told. So I don't want to really go there. Uh, nonetheless, when he uses the word Hades here, usually we use that in a negative way, and sometimes it is used that way. But often the word Hades, it's a Greek word, the word Hades is used as an equivalent of the Old Testament. You remember the word, you've heard the word Sheol before? The Old Testament's used a lot in the Old Testament. Sheol in the Old Testament sometimes is used of what we would call hell, of the final resting place, not resting, final dwelling place of the wicked. But more often than not, Sheol in the Old Testament is just used to refer to the dead, where everybody goes, the dead place, um, the underworld. Uh, well, not the underworld. I mean, sometimes it's used that way, but um, the, the dwelling place of the dead. That's, that's what I was looking for, Sheol. So Hades doesn't necessarily mean hell, though here in this text it seems to be equivalent to hell. But Hades is used as the equivalent of the Old Testament idea of Sheol. I just want you to know that if you see the word Hades, you don't necessarily need to assume he's talking about hell. He could just be talking about you and I are going to go to Hades in the generic sense. You know, Everybody is. If we die, we're going to go to the place where dead people go. It's going to be good for some. It's not going to be good for others. And that certainly is taught here. But So he's in torment, which tells you that he didn't go to anything, any place good. Lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham far off, Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Of course, the dwelling place of the wicked is often used, is often described with words like this. Um, the lake of fire and brimstone, and this flame, one of the worst pains Worst kind of pains you can imagine is being burned, you know. I think that's why the Bible uses it to describe this idea of, a, of an existence, of a kind of pain that's unimaginable, you know. So there are extremes in the text. Extremely poor was Lazarus. Extremely rich was the other guy. Uh, Lazarus is as high as you can go. He's at the side of Abraham. And the rich man is as low as you can go. He is in torment. So this great reversal from up to down, from down to up, that's the way the story's told here. And so you've got this conversation between the rich man and Abraham, and so he wants to send Lazarus. And, and you might notice, and some people have kind of keyed in on this, and I don't know how much to take from it, but the rich man, even in hell, even in Hades, a place of suffering, he's still giving orders. He still thinks Lazarus is beneath him. You know, I don't know if we're expected to glean that kind of idea from what he says, but he, but he does say, send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Abraham says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. There's this great chasm that's been fixed in order that 
those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Um, send him to my father's house. I've got five brothers. Let him warn them. I don't want them to come here. And, uh, you know, I, and I think this is a, a secondary point. I want to go back to my main point, to what I think is Jesus' main point in a second. But he does say that they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Here's a sub-point of this parable. I think that's an important one. And that is that if people have the right kind of heart, they will be persuaded of the truth through the Scriptures. And if they will not be persuaded by the Scriptures, then they would not be persuaded even if they saw a miracle. Seems to be what Jesus is teaching us in the last part of this, right? That even if one came from the dead, even if one came from the dead, um, they would not be convinced. <clears throat> they would not be convinced. So miracles, of course, God worked miracles. Miracles were done in conjunction with the word to confirm that the word was true. Um, there's a sense, and I, I feel like this sometimes. I wish sometimes I've, I've wanted God to do something. I'd love to see God do something supernatural. You know, I don't know if you ever feel like that. I'd love for God just to you know, do something that's undeniable, uh, some sort of whatever you want to call it, miraculous or supernatural. Uh, but my faith and your faith, they're not dependent on seeing God do something miraculous. Um, that's a, we need to be careful about desiring, I think, that sort of extra proof, especially in view of texts like this, you know, where, where God, through the story, is teaching us that the scriptures are going to be proof. And, and he's just talking about the Old Testament, too, interestingly enough, at this point. Moses and the prophets, that's, that's a way of describing the first 39 books of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, Moses and the prophets. They're, they're not going to be convinced if they're not convinced by them. Now, let's go back to, we've got, well, we've got five minutes. The, um, the main point of this story in context is people who, I should have, I should have gotten to this sooner. Because we need to hear, that. every American needs to hear this. We, we need to hear this. I need to hear this. We have... A lot. And this story ought to convict us of how we respond to the needs of people around us. And even when I was studying this, I found myself making excuses. <laughs> um, things like, but Lord, there's so many needy people out there. What can I do to help so many needy people? That's an excuse, you know. God didn't expect you or me to help all the needy people, right? He does expect us to help those who are laid at our gates. And by that, I think what he means is people within our sphere of influence or sight or people we know who don't have enough, this message is true no matter which part of Scripture you're in. It's in the Old Testament, which is why the rich man should have known better. He knew Moses and the prophets. He knew Abraham. So the implication is that the rich man had an awareness of the law, of the, of the law and the prophets. This permeates the law and the prophets. 
I mean, can you, if you, we'll get to, we'll get there eventually uh, in our in our reading. Get to the prophets. Think about this when you get to the prophets. They railed against this stuff, man, over and over again. You calls them fat cows, and they use strong language, but says you you you've got you've got stuff you could use to help the poor, and you're not helping them. You think you're God's people? Well, this this stuff is all over Scripture. It's all over the Old Testament, and it's all over the New Testament. First um, John three, first um, First John three, um, James two. You know, if you've if you've got somebody, you got somebody. Yeah, for, let me let me let me read this before we go to James two. Um, I just want to read you the conclusion of what I, I started with earlier from Blomberg, and he says this. He's been he, he's talking about giving. Oh yeah, by the way, you know what the average church member in America gives? You have any idea? You don't have to guess. I'm not trying to prove you wrong. The average is between two and three percent uh, for American Christians. Evangelicals, which, f- from the way he's using the word evangelical, you and I would be in the evangelical camp. All right, uh, we give on average uh, one percentage point more than that, so three to four percent. I don't know how Churches of Christ would compare to uh, to other evangelical churches. Uh, I don't know. I'd like to think we're a little higher. I don't know. I don't know if we are or not. If all in America, all, all people in America who call themselves Christians, so not, not just, I'm not talking about a census thing, I'm talking about people who are Christians in the sense that they are connected to some sort of local body. Uh, back up, before I say what I was about to say, it would take about 30, economists estimate it would take about 30 to $50 billion a year to meet the most essential human needs around the world. Projects for clean water and sanitation, prenatal, infant maternal care, basic education, immunizations, and long-term development efforts that overcome the poverty conditions that now kill and maim so many children and adults. All right, so take between 30 and $50 billion a year. 30 to 50 billion, that's a lot of money, isn't it? If Christians in America gave 10% of their income, there would be uh, more than $65 billion a year for available for overseas ministry, leaving $15 billion a year for us to take care of our own needs here in America uh, and take care of our neighbors and our own towns and maintain our current congregational programs, including building projects and so on. So, in other words, if Christians would give only 10% of their income, then that would be about $80 billion a year, which is you know, two and two-thirds time the minimum number for taking care of all the problems, not, not all the problems in the world, but... Uh, but what he was talking about earlier. Anyway, we're giving around 2 to 3%, maybe 3 or 4% on average. Um, goes on, and then I want to read the end of this before we're completely out of time. He says this, The point, however, is not the percentage of one's giving, but one's attitude. Does a parable or a sermon like this make you ask yourself, how can I do more? Or do you start to do a slow boil and get upset with the preacher or perhaps even with Jesus for having raised the topic in so pointed a fashion? He says, I believe it's as logically impossible as saying we've experienced God's forgiveness without forgiving others or that we know his love without loving others. He has been phenomenally generous in giving us eternal life. And when he has blessed us with material abundance on top of that, how can we not share generously from it 
if his spirit truly dwells in us and guides us. He closes by reading 1 John 3, 18 and 19. Dear children, let us not love with word or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. The verse prior to that, 1 John 3, 17 says, if you know of people's needs, you meet those needs. And then he says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. So in context, what John is saying is, how do you know? want to know, how do you know you're saved? We ask that question. I've asked that. You know, how do I, what if I'm not saved? What if I'm not saved? John says, here's, here's one way. Here's one way you know. Do you respond to the needs of others by helping them when you have the means to do so? May God help us to be obedient and demonstrate that we truly have experienced his love and generosity in our hearts. That's how he closes. Uh, this is powerful, man, and it, it, it ought to speak to us in the, in the Western world, uh, particularly in our own country. You know, it ought to speak to us because they're needy people, and uh, one of the marks of being a Christian is they respond in generous fashion to people who are, who are disadvantaged for whatever reason. Didn't leave any time for uh, your comments. I'm sure they would have been good if you had made them, uh, but we're out of time. I apologize for that. All right, let's pray, okay? Lord, um, thank you for convicting us with your word. And I know not a single one of us has always done what we should have in this area. And many times we've neglected, for some reason, fear, maybe fear, maybe some other sin. But we haven't always responded as we should. And we ask you to forgive us. And we thank you for convicting us. And we pray that the conviction will will last more than just an hour or two, but it'll change the way we handle what we've got, which isn't really ours, but just stewards of what you've loaned to us for a while, that we'll use those things generously for others. Please help us, Lord, to be more what we ought to be. Thank you that you're patient with us, and we, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much.